0: My father had this sort of fake it till you make it thing that cancel some of my career choices. And that never gets any easier. It doesn't matter how many times you do it. There is some element of failure of leadership. It's an interesting question and I've, I have discussed this with my therapist and I'd forgotten the word for policeman in English, apparently. And he looked at me and he said, what? We said, oh, wouldn't it be good if we lived in a mill, had a range rover and ran a bookshop. They used to call me El Inglés because they couldn't figure out where Wales was. She said, that doesn't convince you to come and work for us, nothing will. And I thought, brilliant, I'm on safe ground with bananas because that's got to be a Spanish word. That was a lot of fun.
1: Hi Chris, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Um, Same question as always, what's the hardest change you've been through in your life? Morning, Gareth.
0: Thanks for inviting me. Um, What's the hardest change I've been through? Actually, lots of the changes in my life haven't been that hard. I've tended to sort of follow my intuition with most of them. So, like... uh, to France initially, then to Spain was very much. Uh, they feel like big changes, but they weren't hard changes, right? And I and I was quite lucky in the sense that I landed in Spain at a time where it was relatively easy to get a job. You know, even if you didn't speak Spanish, you could become an English teacher, which is what I did. And it was just, it, it sort of really a time of boom in, in Spain, so you you felt like you could. There were opportunities around, and particularly in Madrid, I think, which is a city that seems to absorb foreigners and absorb differences. And even the Spanish people who live in Madrid not really from Madrid at all. They're from everywhere else in Spain. And so there's this kind of feeling in this city where every everyone is from here and no one's from here at the same time. And so I think that created a real opportunity to kind of settle in. But anyway, they, I suppose reflecting on the hardest changes the one thing I sort of keep coming back to is when you have to fire people, that never gets any easier. It doesn't matter how many times you do it. It doesn't matter whether the reasons you do it are, well, they're, they're always the right reasons, if you see what I mean, but it that never gets any easier. And, and I think that's, right that it shouldn't get easier it's an awful thing to have to do and uh, yeah that's the one thing that kind of kept coming back into my mind as I was thinking about it it's really yeah that can't never gets easier I don't want it to get easier because you're dealing with people's lives and livelihoods and, and people have families to look after and and it's right that that decision should be done in the most tactful smooth way possible but so that's kind of yeah I guess that's the hardest thing I still struggle with.
1: You say that it doesn't get any easier, but do you think you do you get better at it? Is that the question? Or do you have more or less empathy when you when you have to go into those conversations? Because you're absolutely right. You go into a conversation like that and it's it's hard and the person is well, sometimes they're expecting it, sometimes they're not. Have you changed the way you deal with those conversations having done
0: is certainly once you've had to do it in a difficult way, you become I think very much more focused on things like trial periods and you become much more attached to the legality of, of things rather than the emotional of it. Perhaps you, that helps. But again, it depends if, you're, if you have to do it because of restructuring or structural reasons within a business or whether it is a performance related thing. Those are two very, very different things. And often where it's related with performance, it is easier in a way because the rest of your colleagues thank you for having done it. But there's still people affected, and it, it is hard. And you try your best, to obviously, to take everyone on a journey, and, and you have to kind of recognize there is some element of failure of leadership in that. I suppose you get more efficient at it, maybe, rather than better, if that makes sense. Um, and you certainly become more empathetic to to the rest of the team that you are actually solving a problem for, potentially. So...
1: That failure of leadership is an interesting point. You know, it's, I've talked about this example before, but I've often, you know, when I was working in the hotels, a chef would come to me one day before a chef's probation period was up and was like, I want to get rid of him. Hold on a minute. He's been here for six months minus a day. Does he know that he's not performing? No, 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 no. It's just the end of his probation. He hasn't passed his probation. You know, you're definitely going to look at what you've done wrong as well as, you know, perhaps moving that person on. So, but yeah, it is incredibly tough. I was obviously researching this episode.'ve you've, you've done so much trying to condense it into uh, into <laughs> some, some questions was, uh, was was quite tough. And I, I I kind of wrote it in a bit of an order, but I'm gonna pick something out that I'll put towards the end because I think it's a good starting point for a conversation about everything you've done is when I look at all the things you've done and we'll come on to them around theater, around teaching, bookshops, everything else the one thing that sticks out more than any other is is student housing which has kind of been your career for the majority when i look at it it's been the majority of your career and yet you have all these creative pursuits outside of that and i wonder how the two sort of fit together and almost what your priorities are in life because time point of view you've got a you've got a role to fulfill and that's that's great but it's but yeah it just it sort of there's all these pursuits over here then you've got student housing
0: yeah it's an interesting question and 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 i have discussed this with my therapist on at times as well a pie right and then each of these activities is a proportion of the pie and and the way to kind of achieve happiness is balancing the different bits of the pie and so on and and i thought that's a really interesting theory and and when i achieve it i'll come back on and tell you how i did it i definitely haven't done it yet my answer back to her was just make a bigger pie um apparently that's not how it works so <laughs> so I, I got into student housing by accident so i mentioned that i moved to madrid i moved to madrid in 2001 and i didn't speak spanish and so like everyone at that time that didn't speak spanish we all went to become english teachers skipping ahead a little bit my girlfriend i hate saying girlfriend i'm not married and so it's kind of anyway you get the point of doing a course and i was in the theater doing you know on a friday evening running a uh, the theater company and i was getting phone calls from london i ignored the first one and then they kept ringing and i thought oh god she's in the hospital something's happened and you know picked up the phone from the sort of back of the theater and i was trying not to you know try to keep (laughs) and and I'm from a student housing company. We're looking to start a business in Spain, and we wanted to pick somebody's brains about how to, you know, how to work in Spain. And it was the HR director of the student housing company at the time. And she got my number from Brian Welsh, who you've already spoken to. And he got my number because this is how I remember it. Anyway, he'd looked on LinkedIn and basically put like who do I know in Spain. And he'd had some contacts from international house. Newcastle that I knew because I worked for International House Madrid and so so I get this phone call I'm like uh yeah okay but I'm in the theater <laughs> so we met up we met on a very rainy day in Madrid which isn't normal and we came to Galdos, which is where I am now actually curiously we sat here and they hadn't acquired the building by then this was the first time that international capital came into PBSA in Spain so this was 2000 Capital Management's first sort of push into that. And and I ended up in in the boardroom, which was just behind me, essentially being the translator for the HR director with the sell side on this whole bunch of stuff around collective bargaining agreements and so on. I was like, I only came to meet you for a coffee. And so (laughs) this went on for about an hour and a half, and I'm thinking, I really ought to get back to work. (laughs) And as we were walking out, she looked at me, she said, doesn't convince you to come and work for us nothing will i thought okay this has gone really weird this day and then and then shortly afterwards i met brian and we had a few glasses of wine and the rest is history so that's how i got into it what i really love about although it's real estate it's still university and i've always wanted to be a university professor i think that was kind of like what my sort of love that university lifestyle and and I always thought that would be a great thing to be, but never had really the time or chance to go and do a PhD, to to go for the academic path. It just wasn't what was destined at the time. Might do it next, maybe that maybe that is the don't want to skip ahead to your last question, but maybe that's what it is. And so I sort of always found that the the atmosphere of working in student housing, certainly in Spain at the time, and was much more collegiate in the sense of you were working with the universities in a collaborative way. You were working with the teachers, you were working with the students in a very deep pastoral care role that I'm not sure is the same in PBSA in every country. In Germany, the... I think it's more of a transactional role. I think in America, they really don't talk to the the management staff in the buildings and so on very much. It's again, very transactional. This is where I live and that's it. That's not the case here in Spain. In Spain, it's very, very intensely. You're very intensely engaged with the students and and the wider educational community. So I think that's kind of how I bridge that in my head. I'm not really a real estate guy. I think that's changed as my career has progressed. I think I, now, when somebody asks me what I do, I I am in real estate rather than education. So
1: perhaps that's been the change. So going right back to grew up in South Wales and then went on to study languages. And I'm always interested to know where that love of languages came from. The love of languages, I guess, came from the fact that I
0: I, I did speak Welsh as a, as I was growing up. My family is not a Welsh speaking family, but I went to Welsh speaking schools. So until I was about eight, I was bilingual in Welsh. And then my, when my parents remarried, we, uh, my stepfather is English. And so that was like that, <laughs> that part of that was out of depression. And so no, we moved to a different village and, and, and went to an English-speaking school. So I stopped speaking Welsh pretty much then. But it's sort of ingrained in, in you, I think, psychologically, but also, you know, I think physiologically, you know, as far as I know, Um, the kind of neurons that allow you to kind of code switch between one language and another are formed in those formative years. And I think that stuck with me, even though um, I didn't speak uh, Welsh anymore. And then my father tells this story of coming back from the Alps when I was sort of about four years old or something like that. And we were on the ferry just arriving into Dover. And I'm sort of pointing down at at the quayside and there was some policemen there. And I'm going, daddy, daddy, look, a gendarme, a gendarme. And he's going, what? <laughs> and I'd forgotten the word for policeman in English. Apparently. This is the this is the story I've told. So that was kind of like I, it, I was always relatively good at French at school and so on. And actually, I was completely convinced that my father was could speak french perfectly because every time we'd go to the alps and he'd you know order fondue and order you know get the skis and all of this to hire the skis he could do an accent and i was like, "This is amazing you know this is something to aspire to to be able to speak fluently in the language the blinkers didn't fall from my eyes until the day that i got married to a french woman i was sort of introducing my father to the, the sort of extended family and i said oh yeah this is um this is my wife's grandmother you know you know just have a chat with her and he looked at me and he said what? Just just t- chapter. she's lovely. And he went, I can't speak French. And my stepmother kind of looked at me and she went, but you know you can't speak French, don't you? And I said, no. And she's like, so my father sort of had this sort of fake it till you make it kind of you know thing that you know, I suppose that, that probably accounts for some of my career choices as well. So started very, very young and continued. And then while I was at sixth form college, I was kind of told I wouldn't get the grades to do law and I really should play to my strengths. And so I did
1: French. As you alluded to, you you moved to Spain and became an English language teacher and you didn't speak Spanish. I always talk to people about tough changes. That, that must have been, and you alluded to that, that must have been a tough change arriving in, in a country where you couldn't speak the language yet. You now had to teach Spanish children. I assume, or adults, I don't know, English.
0: It wasn't a, a tough change in, in some ways. I, mean, I suppose there were a few things that were tough about it. It was the day after nine eleven. That was pretty tough. Flying, you know, the safety and you know, security at the airports, Luton Airport, the day after 9-11 was pretty tough. And, and this was back in the days where you, you, you wanted to save as much money as possible. Right, you couldn't afford to do anything, and so you you got the earliest flight possible, which was the cheapest one, and you sleep. I slept at the airport with all my stuff. That I was moving to Spain, you know, and so that was. Uh, bit of an adventure but as I landed it, I had like three or four different text messages offering you know interviews as the English language teachers but it was a real boom time for that industry it was really easy to find a job in essentially an environment where everybody was English speaking and your job was to teach them English now it, it was a mixture of adults and, and children I started um, mostly teaching adults in a business context then I moved into later teaching children and and so on. But yeah, it was mostly adults. The, it, the wider kind of context in Madrid is it's again it's a relatively easy city to not speak Spanish in if you if you want to. That wasn't the approach I took. I lived in a kind of um, neighborhood which was very local, and I, I would kind of deliberately go down to the bar and order a beer and just sort of sit and listen and, and try and catch up and. They used to call me El English because they couldn't figure out where Wales was, and so I just thought, after a while I had thought you've got to get over that being labelled English. But you know, I tried my best, and I just picked it up. I mean, it was obviously an extension of French. I never really sat down and tried to learn Spanish deliberately, but it just sort of came really, and it it wasn't. I can't say it was tough. I do remember going into the supermarket and thinking, right, I I, uh, I don't know what the names of any foods are, and then I kind of came across a tin of tuna, which in Spanish letters just jumbled up. And I thought, yeah, that makes sense to me. (laughs) I don't know why. I just knew that atún was tuna and that was fine. Because there still are fruit and veg guys in Spain and like supermarkets elsewhere. And I was sort of pointing and I was going, um, say bananas. And I thought, brilliant. I'm on safe ground with bananas because that's got to be a Spanish word. And the guy was going, platanos. And I'm going, no, bananas. Bananas. And I'm pointing at them. They're, they're, They're fucking there in front of you. And then after sort of five minutes of this, he sort of looks at me and he goes, in Spanish, banana is platano. And I was going, ah, p- then seis platanos, please. You know? <laughs> so yeah, it, it didn't feel like a hard thing to do, I must admit. It was a relatively easy time. I think it's pretty much harder now because industries like English language teaching have changed and there's much more bilingual education. And so the a lot of the uh, those kind of opportunities, I think, are no longer there. So I think it was a relatively good
1: time to write i was thinking about learning languages you read a lot about ai can translate everything these days and yet duolingo seems to be and you know everybody wants to learn language you say that it's not quite the same at the moment but do you think people still well should they go and learn languages or is it or is that going to become less and less as as time goes on with technology
0: Yeah, I I think both is
1: probably the answer to to your question. On the first point, I think
0: it's enriching culturally, right? You can do an awful lot of stuff with AI or just, you know, Google Translate or whatever at a very transactional level, right? So you can, if you need to, and and we've done this, we've traveled, you know, around the world. We've been in Myanmar, we've been in Japan and so on. And, you know, as much as you can have a, a, uh, a gift for those kind of modern European languages, Japanese and 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 Burmese doesn't quite. You know, it's a bit harder, so it's quite useful to translate over things. Oh, okay, toilet this way. But th- I think it stays then at the transactional level, right? And so you're really talking about getting stuff done. You know, booking a hotel, getting a meal or whatever. But you don't get to the deeper interactional level, and therefore speak to people on my girlfriend talks about meet people where they are right she works in she works for a, a charity that um, called the well-being project which and so she talks about meet people where they are so if you can speak their language you can meet them halfway it's a much more enriching experience if you can do that on the one hand on the other hand you know there are just some things which don't need to be you know that, that are very much transactional and ai is pretty good at doing stuff like that i think well, I think the other thing is, you know, if you look at the difference maybe between this kind of procedural type of language and literature, you wouldn't want an AI translating a book, for example, because whilst it would do a pretty good job in translating the words, I, I don't think we're at the position yet. I might be wrong, by the way, because it's not my area of expertise, but um, I don't think AI can today or orbit and the poetic depth that the original author intended. And I think that's the skill of a kind of professional translator. You know, I know that a chat GPT has written books and things, but I think they,
1: from what I've heard, they're a little clunky. So jumping to something else you've done, co-founded a theatre company. Talk to me about that journey.
0: Yeah, I mean it was really again, it was <laughs> it was just a sort of really simple change. It seems quite big looking back. Um I, I was working on a summer school. And I was the assistant director to to the director, and she and I were quite efficient in getting stuff done. Right, she's a um, fantastically driven person. We basically organised everything in a couple of days, and then we sort of let the rest of the camp kind of you know, carry on. Every now and then, I'd you know, I'd go, well, where, where's Sue gone? Where's Sue gone? And she'd be somewhere working out or dancing. After a while, we. We can't, I don't know, I, I really can't remember exactly how it happened, but we said, well, wouldn't it be good if we could teach these kids English through the medium of you know, singing, dancing, and acting? We spent pretty much the rest of the camp writing the business plan syllabus and and pulling it together and then proposing it to someone, and then away we went. And we did that. It lasted for 10 years in total, which was uh, quite a success. In the end, I think, we simply because while well, Sue had moved back to the U.K., I was starting my career in PBSA and I was doing my MBA at the same time. And so it was just a question of too many things. And so something had to give and that was it. But yeah, so that was the idea. Then every two years or every year we took the group of kids who were between five and 18. There weren't many 18 year olds, but they were mostly five to 16. And it was somewhere between 50 and 80 at any given time, kind of extracurricular activity for them. And we took them to on tour so every two years we would have a national tour which sounds very grand and then it, interspersed there we would organize to go to the edinburgh festival and so they would have that whole experience of going to edinburgh during the festival which is an incredible experience in itself but also getting to perform at the edinburgh festival which is pretty it's pretty special and um yeah it's great it's good we did musicals with kids and it was a lot of fun a lot of hard work. That was hard work. I must
1: admit. <laughs> so you describe it at the start as, well, it, it wasn't that hard. And then you, you, when you talk about it, it's, it sounds like it was incredibly complex.
0: It was, but there were two of us at the core of doing it, right? It wasn't just me. And I think it was that partnership. And we, we had other collaborators that were with us for different periods of time. But the core of it was, um, and that collaboration was very fruitful. And, and I think it was, yeah, something that do on your own as a second job which is what it was it was every friday night and every saturday morning for 10 years it was um but yeah you get you get a lot out of it and if i look now the again to, to the earlier kind of point about the link between the different things there's always been a link of you know teaching in some way right teaching working with groups of people and then i suppose in in business sense i do less teaching but i probably do a lot of coaching, if that makes sense. It's not always formalized, but I do spend a lot of time with my team and colleagues and hope they get something out of it.
1: You talked about you saw yourself as you wanted to be a university professor. You are a university professor. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I'm a fake university professor. I'm an adjunct. That is true. I am an adjunct professor. Yes, I teach. Well, I've been teaching one course for the last couple of years, and and I'm doing one this year as well. I when I say university, I'm not like a proper academic, you know, with all the stuff. I, I, it is one of the things I enjoy very much doing. Again, it's a it's a second job, but yeah, it's it's great. And it's nice to have that affiliation and to be engaged with with the university. I teach courses. And I will be teaching a specialist course, albeit very short, on student housing in uh, in in February, I think, in the dates. And I'll be tutoring the group for their final thesis project as well. So that's an, uh, an interesting development for this year. But yeah, no, I think it, it was more the, the sort of full, full-time full work, well, perhaps not full-time, but, you know, going, and there's something romantic, I think, about that, but uh, it's for a little bit. That,
1: that's quite interesting. What are you going to teach them about student housing and what is that cohort? You know, what are they studying and how, who is that aimed at? Yes, yeah,
0: so it's a cohort of students on a master's in real estate development. The, this is a, a module which is called Real Estate Products, various industry i'll struggle to say experts here i'm sure the others are i don't want to put myself in that bracket but let me say to longevity i'll 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 wear that badge for a moment it's so they've got they have a couple up on resi couple of they've kind of gone oh there's this new thing called student housing i'm doing that part what i going to teach them, we are figuring that out right now between the different professors and so on, because we're looking at what are the kind of different elements that you want to kind of raise. I, I suspect it's going to be very focused on the operational intensity, intensity compared to offices, for example, or perhaps the, the way the industry is structured, the, how it's financed, and, and where those might be different from traditional bricks and mortar or industrial
1: sheds that kind of thing so yeah, i'm figuring that out right now <laughs> i've not heard of that being done in any other universities well, so it would be interesting to see there aren't many
0: master's programs on real estate development i know of one in in switzerland which is more evaluation based but no there aren't many no no so it's quite it's quite unique in that sense
1: i'm going to talk about books next you have two independent bookshops yeah
0: why Uh, on pretty much our first date my girlfriend and i went to a restaurant and we said oh wouldn't it be good if we had if we lived in a mill had a range rover and ran a bookshop right and that was like 15 years ago and it was one of those sort of stupid conversations you have when you've just met someone and you're kind of like in love and or starting to fall in love and you know I I think honestly we still like the idea of living in a mill. We haven't we haven't got a mill yet. We haven't got a Range Rover either, I just to be clear. But we do have a Land Rover, so we're almost there. And then a few a few years ago, it was around 2017, a friend of mine said, Oh, um, this the French bookshop in Madrid is up for sale because the people are moving on, moving back to France or whatever it was. And, and I thought, Oh, wow, is this an opportunity to get, you know, two out of three, right? I already had the Land Rover. I'm not bragging. <laughs> I just saying. so we went and we looked at this little French bookshop, and we kind of sort of you know we looked at the business plan, we looked at the numbers. It was it was a nice little business, honestly. It was, uh, but I was kind of thinking, yeah, but you know, like it doesn't make enough money to kind of retire, not retire, but stop working in student housing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, and also, it wasn't in our neighborhood. It was in a completely different part of. And also, it was just French books, and we were like, well, that's a bit weird. I mean. That i speak French and, and my girlfriend Swiss, so Swiss Italian. You know, it, it wasn't it, there wasn't enough of an emotional connection. And as we were kind of coming back into into town, we said, "It's a shame it's not Cervantes and Company, which was round the corner from our house." Because we'd definitely go for it if it was that. And 24 hours later, we get a phone call from a friend of ours saying, "Just had this really weird conversation, offering me to buy a bookshop." And we were like, "Really? We've just done the same thing in." French bookshop and she said oh no 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 this is not the French one this is the one around the corner from your house and like what we went and four partners we each have sort of different skill sets again I think that's what makes it work so one of my partners is um, an editor translator by training and and has worked in publishing for the last sort of you know 10 probably more years the other one is a is a writer and uh, has worked and run bookshops in the past and then I do the kind of boring bits and my girlfriend does the kind of events management stuff. So that's how we kind of complemented each other in terms of skill set. And, and like I said earlier, with the theatre company, these things you can't really, you need those complementary skills to make the whole thing come together. So and it happened pretty quickly. And then and the, the second one came about because we sub-bookshop to a PR company who, whose founder, who quite tragically passed away at the end of last year, which was very, very sad, he he had this vision for his business where he wanted to have an office, but he wanted to then have kind of like spin-off offices in bookshops because he thought that from a creative perspective, it was good for his teams to be able to kind of be in that environment. And so he, he, I believe he had one in in Barcelona and then he did that with us in, in Madrid. And he was from the sort of north of Spain in a town called Ponferrada and he wanted to do something similar there and what we did was we did the opposite he couldn't find a bookshop to put his office in so he built an office and then asked us to build a bookshop around the office and so we did that and and it's still going which is a great you know and i think in terms of business success if a bookshop is still going that is success right the numbers are smaller and so just keeping going is 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 a big tick in the box in in real estate you're talking millions and billions and in a bookshop you're really talking about can we afford to spend 24 pence on a bar of soap
1: that's the difference it's fun though (laughs) when we were researching the episode you said something in spite always having worked in the private sector you're deeply passionate about the role of the public sector in our world i wondered what you meant by that what i mean
0: is that i think the public sector has the public sector has a lot to offer and I think the public sector has a lot to offer on, and in terms of providing the basic services for all humans to enjoy. And I kind of see it in a sort of Maslowian way, right? So you, you, you've got this sort of pyramid of needs and, and, and things. And I think it's up to governments broadly to provide those basic minimum things so that all humans have the same opportunities going forward. And the structure of how we build the society says something about us as human beings and our deeper values. And I suppose as you work more internationally, you see the quite stark differences between countries and how they behave from a public perspective. And that sort of tells you something about their underlying values. The, those structures of society start to be dictated by large companies and in particular, globalised companies, brands and investors, which at times is potentially usurping the role of government. And if government and the public sector in general is going to have maintain, in my view, a real moral North Star of what it is that the whole of the society believes in. So, in very simple terms, do we believe that healthcare is a point of need for every one of the citizens in our country? We will structurally remove the differences in, in society. I think it's a really different, difficult path to tread. And I think what we've seen in recent times, perhaps, is a uh, minimizing the importance of that role. And we've been putting more attention onto privatization of things, which isn't a bad thing in itself. But when you privatize too much, you you can lose what the objective was, right? So the objective of of the kind of a welfare state is not to fix sick people; it's to create healthy people, or to ensure that people are healthy in the first place. When you privatize it in a hospital, it's to fix sick people from for money. Now, again, I, I'm not against the idea of having private healthcare. It's just that it's a complement to the access that everybody in my view should have, regardless of where they come from or how much money their demographic background might be. So that's kind of what I mean. And I think when we look at within student housing because it definitely crosses the boundary between public education provision, in, you know in the UK, the vast majorities of higher education institutions are public. That's not necessarily the case in every country. One of the challenges we get in student housing a lot is about affordability. And my question is, well, is affordability a private sector concern? And I think there are circumstances where you have public-private partnerships. There needs to be a balance there between the public interest, which is why it was created in the first place, and the private reward. And I don't think that balance is always struck. Um, The building that we're sat in at the moment is a public-private partnership. It sits on the university's land and it's owned by uh, GSA and Harrison Street, and it's managed by UGO. And uh, there are certain factors that have to be provided by us in the public benefit. So, for example, I can see students walking past, going to the library of the Faculty of Education, which is inside this building. And so as part of the construction of this building, we have to build a library for that faculty. So, again, looking what is the public you know purpose of creating this was to create that space for them as well and that's what happened but it's not always the case and i think when the public sector needs to be perhaps a little you know a little stronger in, in understanding absolutely what they want to achieve in some cases i think i've meandered around that a little bit but I think. now
1: yeah, you answered my, my my follow-up question when you were talking was about how that re- applies to student housing
0: no but the, 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 there's a wider question there which is as we And it's less relevant in Spain right now. But as you build, um, particularly on-campus provision, so you look at, there's a lot of it in the the UK. I lived in on-campus accommodation, which was university owned and managed then. It's since been knocked down and rebuilt, and I think it's managed by, probably by UPP, but uh, don't quote me on that, I'm not sure. So organisation, the university has to retrench on its core objectives, which should be education and research and and so on but if by doing that it and i repeat it's not always the case but it can be the case with the students who would otherwise who can't access that education because they can't afford to live there again public concern In my view it's a public concern but it means that we need you know the public sector needs to take responsibility for for providing that as well it's uh it's a balance to be struck
1: taking that one step further I wonder how your attitude towards public and private sector collaboration, passion for teaching and everything else feeds into, you know, are you unique in your business development office of Ugo, uniquely placed and kind of have a different outlook to perhaps a typical real estate business, which is what Ugo and GSA and everything else is. Do you think that was part of the reason why you're in the role? Because perhaps you offer something something different?
0: I, that's very flattering to think of it in those terms. So thank you. <laughs> My mum will be delighted with that. I think so. I think I hope so in a way because it, ultimately what Hugo is trying to do is be more than a kind of traditional property manager. And that's not to put down the role of the traditional property manager, which you know has a we do do that. We have to do that. but it, I think we see it very very much as that's the baseline of what we do. And so this connection beyond that with the students, with the universities and those long-term sort of partnerships and understanding the motivations of public servants, predominantly teachers in the case of universities or, or managers of teaching institutions, entirely different from the way private institutions think. And I think understanding those things probably does help build those relationships stronger. And that affords us then more opportunities on the real estate side, right? We are a real estate business delighted to be one. But there is a soul to it, I think, that I probably wouldn't find in if I were working in offices, right? I've never been tempted to move into a different asset class. And I'm wondering now, whether that's the reason. So that's interesting. Whether I'm completely unique in that space, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take it for today, but I don't think so.
1: One of the questions I always ask towards the end is about what you would change about the world. And I will ask you that question. But I wonder, what would you change about the student housing industry if you had magic wand the flippant
0: answer is i would and actually slightly flippant answer is i would selfish as well i would like to see a rebalance between the distribution of who gets paid for what the property manager absolutely gets the smallest slice of the whole cake and yet ultimately is responsible for the lives you know quite literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of students and the protection of these assets that can be valued into the hundreds of millions. So I think, you know, I understand why it's been structured the way it's structured, but I, you know, it would be, I think, and we we keep trying to push for a more equitable slice and it is changing and it, there are different ways of slicing and dicing that across the world. But that would be one interesting thing. But again, it's a very selfish uh, perspective, that one, I think. The other thing, and this is what I think is changing, is that the industry has kind of evolved, right, from broadly pre-2000s being a kind of passive industry, which i kind of characterised as kind of, you know, the guy might turn up once every Tuesday and sweep the floors and, and so on. And then in the 2000s, roughly, there was this shift into kind of active student property management, which was more... Okay, you had an on-site team, they were looking at things like PPM, they were, you know, actively keeping that building up. And then you had this shift, or I think that we're experiencing now, and I think whether it was student housing company at the beginning, and now you go, and through the the next three years in in Spain in the middle, is very much driving towards a proactive approach to, to student property management, which includes... Really looking at the welfare and well being of students achieve and enabling them to do that, uh, enabling them to get exposure to different professional opportunities, which is a key kind of pillar of, of UGO. We have currently something like 27, 28 that live with us. So they're getting work experience while living with us. And I think another thing is um, the broader well being piece, which I, I know is a, a kind of buzzword in the industry. And I think that those are the characteristics of that proactive type of management. So those things are changing. And as a consequence of that, I think that coupled with macroeconomic factors like it really, you know, interest rates rising, yields going you know, against investors at the moment, you're we're finding that they're much more central to the whole part of the industry. Whereas before we were very much the tail being wagged by the dog, you know, you get a developer with a book of properties and, and they would go to an investor and go, which ones do you want? Oh, I want that one, that one, that one, that one, and then at some point, probably a week before the building, did anybody contract with a property manager yet? No. Nope. Oh, so, and then they go and find a property manager to come in at the last minute and, and look at it. Well, I haven't designed any of this. I had nothing to do with any of this. You just give me some keys and said, you know, fill the building and, and off you go. What we're seeing now is completely different. Um, we're actually starting to see investors who have a clear investment strategy to deploy in this business, partnering with um, and and, and I, the, the horizontally, verti- the, sorry, the vertically integrated people have done that, sure, but that's never a partnership with a third party manager. And and it's more the strategic nature of it, i.e. build the partnership, decide what the business is going to be. Is it going to be in the affordable space? Is it going to be in the premium space? Is it going to be in the, you know, are we going to be in only key you know top 10 university cities or are we going to go further and then look for a product that's very much a different approach and that's what we're starting to see now so yeah the, those are the things i've changed and the things that i'm seeing change right now
1: we've talked about all the different things you've done teaching theatre if somebody asks about you what would you say would you say you're a, a professor a student housing development officer how would you describe yourself it's it is
0: it's a difficult question and uh, it is a difficult question. I, I do, and now I do tend to say I work in real estate because people understand what that means outside our industry and outside the kind of narrow confines of real estate, and, it, and that's quite easy to forget. By the way, real estate isn't—it's it, a pretty small world. <laughs> but we, we forget because we're quite you know enclosed in it, and um, people don't know what it means. So I just say I work in real estate. Pretty much how I do it. Yeah, I probably should go back to that pie. That my therapist talks about
1: we have come on to quick fire around questions now if you could change one thing about the world what would it be uh,
0: i would have the world think more collectively in a more collectivist manner and act accordingly uh, and be less individualistic
1: okay and what advice would you give to someone who wants to change the direction but doesn't know where to start
0: the best thing that i can think of is start with your passions if you don't know what you want to do go and do what you love and then a job will turn up. So if, uh, if I were looking to change, and I would probably go and try and work in the wine industry or the ski industry and then worry about what the job was later. But I'll probably end up being business development anyway. It doesn't matter where I end up. So. <laughs> uh,
1: you go back to being a ski instructor, maybe.
0: <laughs> I, look, that, I, that, that is a pretty good job. I think that was a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, not many mountains around here. <laughs> and, and what's going to be your next big change?
0: So yeah, well, that's an interesting one. Um I I never really know actually. And I, I was listening to Joe P's fascinating episode. That he was so deliberate about his career and so kind of like really the, the best possible sense of that word and making, you know, really proactive decisions about I'm gonna learn this and then that's gonna take me there. I've never done it like that. I've always kind of been offered opportunities and I don't remember ever saying no. So I think I don't know really what that next change is going to be because there's ne- not how I've ever done it, cop-out answer. But there you are.
1: <laughs> Maybe you're going to do that PhD that you talked about.
0: <laughs> I would Actually, that's a good point. I would love to do that.
1: If you find the time.
0: It, at some point, but it is, you know, it's 10 years away, I think. at least I would, I would like to settle into a kind of teaching job at a university, but preferably Tuesday to Thursday, so i can just skiing on the weekends. So or so again, I I thought a lot about this one as well. And so many people who I would recommend uh, have already either been on the show or have been recommended by others. So I'm going to try and do one would be John Thornhill from ask for It's not strictly real estate, but they're a provider into the real estate um, industry. And the reason I would say John is I think he's had a very interesting journey as well non-traditional, perhaps. And I think that's really inspiring on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, I think anybody that knows agree, he's just probably one of the best people in the world. He's just lovely and and wonderful to be with. So um, so John would definitely be up there. The second person would be, again, in the spirit of hopefully something different for you, Anna Lozano. Anna Lozano is an architect. She has designed various student housing buildings that we manage, but not only that, she's sort of pioneering the use of AI in architecture. And she's a very you know who lives between Spain, and Paris. You know, uh, it, she's a fascinating person to speak to, and and you know her kids live in Paris. She lives in so she's a really interesting person. But doing multiple different things in, in the wider real estate industry, not just in student housing, but but also pushing the boundaries of people there, and I think that's a really,
1: really
0: fascinating thing to
1: get into with her. But and thanks, we'll uh, we'll definitely reach out to them and try and um, try and get some episodes recorded. Chris, we we finally got together and recorded an episode after a few different attempts at getting diaries to line up, um, and it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. I think um everyone you know and you were recommended more than once to come on the show everyone said that you'd trodden a bit of a different path to a traditional real estate career and i think talking to you today that's that's true but i can really see how the two worlds collide and i think um, i think having somebody like you in in a provider such as big as you go having that influence can only be a good thing so um so yeah thanks very much for talking to me today
0: been a pleasure. Thank you, Gareth, and and you know it is it is quite humbling to have been you know recommended by the people who recommended me. Uh, it, yeah, well, thank you. Appreciate it.